Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Welcome back again to all of our listeners. I trust again that you've been walking in the spirit-filled wisdom of God by allowing him to love you and equip you to love others. Furthermore, I pray that all of us have considered the personal humility required to give God the honor that he deserves as we approach him and address our own sin. In this session, we're going to look at James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, and consider the importance of surrendering to God's power and sovereignty amidst true repentance. Recently, we've journeyed through the partnership of faith and works, considering the power of the tongue as it relates to speaking and teaching the truth of God concerning what saving faith is. Remember specifically that the relationship between faith and works is simply that since we are saved by Christ, it doesn't make sense that we wouldn't look like him. James has taught us that since you believe that you are saved by Christ, we should show evidence of this. And may I also remind you as we begin this new session today, that the central concern of James's letter as a whole is true religion and worship by loving others through being like Christ. We're going to consider more of that today. That Christ-like love demonstrates that we have been truly changed by Christ and responding to God in true faith through right belief produces right actions that are not like the world. We've considered how James helps his readers love by addressing their greed and materialism, anger, ungodly speech, and discrimination against others. So let's consider the importance of surrendering to God's power and sovereignty amidst true repentance. Repentance is the issue at hand that has been introduced in the first part of chapter 4. James simply wants his audience to respond to what he has exposed among them. Today's text is James chapter 4 verses 13 through 17. And it says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into this or that town and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You do not know about tomorrow. What is your life like? For you are a puff of smoke that appears for a short time and then vanishes. You ought to say instead, If the Lord is willing, then we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast about your arrogant plans. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows what is good to do and does not do it is guilty of sin. The fundamental problem with this sin is that it is rooted in pride. Pride is a peculiar, pervasive, and corrosive thing. It can manifest itself in the form of self-pity or arrogance, obstinance, and even independence. The kind of pride that James identifies here is one of the worst types. It's self-reliance and the denial of the dominion and authority of God in one's life. Pride takes the image-bearing gifts, abilities, and resources that God has graciously given to us and redeemed in us, and uses them to separate us from God. These things allow us to believe that we don't need God or that we are wiser than him. This is what Satan's great act of rebellion is rooted in. He was envious and thought he didn't need to be accountable or depend nor honor God. This is what pride does. It diminishes God in our own hearts and thinking. This seems to be what James's audience was running amok doing. They simply diminished and reduced God. 
it's not a stretch to imagine that this is directly related to their envy and selfish desires that they allowed to grow amongst themselves indicated in the previous passage, as well as their love of wealth. There is a direct connection between being led by fleshly desires and becoming arrogant and self-reliant to the point of diminishing the power and authority and even the goodness of God. We are made by God to partner with God. This partnership relies on the reality that we understand our relationship with Him and embrace the fact that God is not like us. He is otherworldly. He is more powerful, holy, supremely more than humans are as His image bearers. However, it's not difficult to realize that if we diminish God to the point that we don't really need Him, then why would we honor Him? That's simply silly. A lack of reliance on God leads to an inability to see who He really is, and therefore we have no reason to honor Him, nor even consider partnering with Him. This is what ultimately leads to our own judgment and destruction. This is the fundamental reason why we are unhappy, angry, and feel so dissatisfied and unfulfilled as humans. And furthermore, why we mistreat and dishonor one another. The practical result of this type of thinking is us disregarding and subtracting God from our everyday affairs and the common decisions of basic life that are rooted in a fundamental and divine reality of eternal truth. We simply don't think we need God. Modern thinking has simply reduced God to a stuffy crutch at best or ancient ill-informed ideas that are foolish and archaic. Modern people have abandoned a God of truth, goodness, and power. Modern people think they've been enlightened by embracing ideas that God has deemed to be wicked and unrighteous. They want to serve themselves and the gods of their desires, ambitions, and even comforts. Perhaps the Apostle Paul identifies the fundamental failure of mankind in Romans 1, 18-23, which says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, because they are understood through what has been made, so people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give Him thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Or may I be so bold to add even riches and wealth and status. I believe this is exactly what is behind the behavior of his audience and subsequent warning of this letter. It's simply pride, a spirit of independence apart from God. James indicates this idea in chapter 4, verse 16, when he says, But as it is, you boast about your arrogant plans. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows what is good to do and does not do it is guilty of sin. Similarly, to those addressed in Romans 1.20, that God's invisible power and divine attributes should recognize the God of creation and respond accordingly. Although they recognize aspects of the power of God here, they have fundamentally and willfully gone against Him. This is evident throughout the letter, in fact. In short, 
James knows that repentance and true change starts with the perspective that truly recognizes the authority and power of an almighty God. In other words, the wise man holds loosely to his plans because he knows that God could cause them to change at any moment. Then his plans don't become idols, and there is no disappointment or discontentment with the outcome of life. This brings much peace and stability to the follower of God, and a very deep dependence on him, a dependence that says he is the source of life and maintains the delicate balance of human purpose and design. God simply can't be avoided or dismissed. In an attempt to facilitate their repentance, James, use, James uses another word picture. He simply uses the analogy for the frailty of life by saying in chapter 4, verses 14 through 15, You do not know about tomorrow. What is your life like? For you are a puff of smoke that appears for a short time and then vanishes. You ought to say instead, if the Lord is willing, then we will live and do this or that. This is powerful. He's fundamentally reorienting their regard and attitude towards a God that is sovereign and divinely authoritative, but also one that is approachable and benevolent. He indicates that God holds our very lives as humans, that we should approach him in seeking his will and care over our plans and affairs. James's primary concern isn't commerce, nor is he making any reference about what the will of God is for our individual lives and where we go and when we go there, not our careers or travel or anything like that. Instead, he's establishing that our lives are fragile. We are essentially vulnerable and susceptible creatures who really don't have much control over anything, but God does, and that he's trustworthy and powerful, so he should be carefully regarded. We should trust him. It would be helpful to compare the mortality of human life on this earth with the message of life James has introduced in his letter. It will also be helpful to contrast God's power with man's power. James has already established in chapter 1 verses 5 through 6 the truth that we should seek God in faith when we ask him for wisdom in order to navigate the temptations, needs, and suffering of life. We do this as we tackle the task of loving others in accordance to his own character and nature. He's also established that man is frail and will pass away like the wild flowers in chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, and that God, through his sovereign plan in chapter 1, verses 18, gives us birth and life, and to humbly welcome the message of life that has been implanted in them, chapter 1, verse 21. These main thoughts, among others in the letter, set up today's text. So let's look at some other passages from the biblical story that point to the same kind of picture in the realities that James wants his audience to see. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 6 through 9 says, A voice says, Cry out. Another asks, What should I cry out? The first voice responds, All people are like grass, and all their promises are like the flowers in the field. The grass drives up, the flowers wither, when the wind sent by the Lord blows on them. Surely humanity is like grass. The grass dries up, the flowers wither, but the decree of God is forever reliable. Go up on a high mountain, O herald Zion, shout out loudly, O herald Jerusalem, shout, don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Psalm 8 verses 4 through 6 reads, Of what importance is the human race that you should notice them? Of what importance is mankind that you should pay attention to them? 
You made them a little less than the heavenly things. You crown mankind with honor and majesty. You appoint them to rule over your creation. You have placed everything under their authority. Psalm 144 verses 3 through 4 says, O Lord, of what importance is the human race that you should notice them? Of what importance is mankind that you should be concerned about them? People are like a vapor. Their day is like a shadow that disappears. Job 7 verses 6 through 9 says, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. Remember that my life is but a breath, that my eyes will never again see happiness. The eye of him who sees me now will see me no more. Your eyes will look for me, but I will be gone. As a cloud is dispersed and then disappears, so that one who goes down to the grave does not come up again. And lastly, 1 Peter 1, verses 23 to 25, You have been born anew, not from perishable, but from imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was proclaimed to you. Theologically speaking, it is vital that man sees his value and place and role and even partnership with God amidst his frailty and brokenness. That Jesus redeems mankind so that they may be restored to their rightful creator through an initiated relationship with God, so that they may properly image bear per his intention and design. Remember the issue of wisdom that James has brought up at the end of chapter 3? The person who is wise is one who follows the pattern and order and design of God which flows from his character and nature. Wisdom is embracing and following God's truth and not working against it. The connection between godly wisdom and saving faith is that one who is truly saved is transformed and will identify and live in a manner that is wise before God. People who are saved by God are transformed in the Holy Spirit by God. People who know God through the message of life in Jesus Christ recognize their own frailty and limitations. They also recognize the loving sovereignty of God and seek His will for their short life on earth before eternity with Him. Moreover, wisdom means when you think God's will is one thing, but it ends up being another. This is not the point of despair or discontentment because we often don't know God's will, but we can rest in his good character and nature. So may we too follow James's instruction, conduct our lives in a manner where we're regarding the sovereignty and the power and goodness of God through humility as we walk with him. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu slash partner.